in the midst of the storms of life that, uh, that we all know come sooner uh, rather than later, Lord, that uh, we're not alone, Lord, that we can have perfect peace and perfect rest even in the midst of that because as you tell us, you're always going to be with us. And, uh, and we thank you for that, Lord. We come to your word this morning hopeful and expectant that you will continue to to grow us and shape us and change our hearts through it, Lord. We don't come to your word as something to uh, just stand on top of uh, and use for conversation or argument or whatever it may be, Lord. We come uh, to sit underneath of it and to let it speak to us, uh, to let let it correct us and train us for righteousness, Lord, because we believe that that in it is everything that we need for a life of godliness. And so we come humbly asking what you would have of us. And we ask that you reveal that to us this morning, Lord. Show us what it looks like to be a faithful follower of you. And pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. Several of you have asked how I'm feeling this morning, which I appreciate. I'm back and feeling much, much better. I think uh, everything is... Uh, I think it's I think it's moved through our family. Our little girl JC, she's uh, she's the last one. She's hanging on, but I think she's over the worst of it. So uh, we're doing much better, which I'm thankful for. And uh, thank you for asking. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 13. I don't know if that sounds as weird as it feels to not say turn to Romans, but we're going to go to Matthew 13 this morning. And we're going to look at a couple of verses, verses 51 and 52, just by means of uh, kind of introduction and expectation over the next few weeks. We're going to uh, just take the month of January to kind of do a little mini-series on discipleship and talk about different aspects of discipleship and what a disciple uh, does and looks like. Uh, the, the idea this morning that we'll be talking about is that a disciple learns. That'll be kind of the main uh, the main theme next week, we'll talk about how a disciple prays, a uh, disciple forgives, and then a disciple goes. That can be what you expect uh, here over the next few weeks. But this morning, we're going to talk about this idea that a disciple is a learner. And I think Matthew 13 gives us some helpful insights into, into, into what that looks like and how it works. And so let me just read these few verses as we get started here. Again, it's Matthew 13. Verses 51 and 52. This is Jesus speaking here in context. He says, Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, or some may say, every scribe who has become a disciple, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Uh, some scholars will argue that one of the uh, kind of unfortunate trends in American Christianity that's taking place is the loss of the Christian mind. Harry Blairmeers, he's an author, he wrote a book in 1963 called The Christian Mind, the subtitle is How Should a Christian Think, in which his thesis was, it was this in his words, there is no longer a Christian mind. <laughs> that's his main argument of the whole book. It doesn't even exist anymore. He goes on saying this can be seen in the fact that we have emptied our brains of Christian vocabulary and Christian concepts and later argues that Christian thinking on any number of topics, education, occupation, dating, relationships, 
leisure, all of these things, is far more shaped by secular culture than it is the ethics and teaching of the Bible. Now, this was all the way back in 1963. But I think if we look out in our world and, and maybe our churches at large today, we see that much of the same thing is present, if not magnified on a whole other level than this man ever saw in his time. J.P. Moreland, he's another author who, who wrote on this kind of idea more recently in his book, uh, Love Your God With All Your Mind. This was published in 2012, much more recent. But he dates this problem uh, all the way back to the early 1700s and 1800s near the, the establishment of our national context as we know it. He highlights the seeds that George Whitfield planted in the 1730s and 1750s with his, his very popularized, uh, rhetorically strong, emotionally captivating preaching during the First Great Awakening. And then he considers the effects that it began to have sort of through the middle 1800s. Uh, the 1800s, which saw three great awakenings break out, the Second Great Awakening, the revivals of Charles Finney, and the Layman's Prayer Revival, all tremendously impactful, but all with subtle emphases on personal and emotional and moralistic preaching instead of carefully, uh, careful and doctrinally precise sermons and messages. Listen to what he says about this. This is a, a longer quote, but just hang with me to the end. He says, Obviously, there is nothing wrong with the emphasis of those movements on personal conversion. What was a problem, however, was the intellectually shallow, theologically illiterate form of Christianity that became part of the populist Christian religion that emerged. One tragic result of this was what happened in the so-called burned-over district in the state of New York. Thousands of people were quote-unquote converted to Christ by revivalist preaching, but they had no real intellectual grasp of Christian teaching. As a result, two of the three major American cults began in the burned-over district among the unstable, untaught converts, Mormonism in the 1830s, and the Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1880s. Now, I know someone out here is wondering, what's with the, what's with the history lesson this morning, right? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. The reason is to illustrate the ramifications of a reality that we see present in the church today just as much, if not more so, than we did 50 or 100 or hundreds of years ago. The loss of the Christian mind. The loss of Christians thinking like Christians that comes first from a lack of, of clear vision for what the life of a disciple of Jesus looks like, including being a lifelong learner of the Word of God. Friends, why do false gospels and false thinking spring themselves not just outside of the church, but also inside the church because of a failure of God's people to understand God's Word. Now, why do people fail to think like Christians about education and jobs and parenting and relationships because of a failure of God's people to love God with their minds as well as their hearts and their emotions? These are the things that are at stake this morning as we as we think about this conversation, idea of the follower of Jesus being a learner of his word and the way of his kingdom so that we can be faithful followers of him in all of our lives. And what I want to try to show you is that far from being something that, that only church leaders are concerned with or should be concerned with, and far from being something that maybe only more intellectual personalities are concerned with, learning 
is an essential task in the life of everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus. Let me just say it again. Learning is an essential task in the life of every single person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. You cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus if you are not committed to a lifelong process of learning about him through his word. And Matthew 13 these couple of verses, they're going to be the place that we're going to, we're going to kind of camp out the most this morning and, and try to make this argument from, but we're also going to jump around and look at and, and think about some other texts as well as they become relevant to us. And just by means of kind of structure uh, for our time, we're going to consider this, this main idea, the central nature of learning in the life of a disciple by trying to answer three questions about a life of discipleship. Three questions. Why do we learn? What do we learn? And then what do we do with what we learn? Why do we learn? What do we learn? And what do we do with what we learn? These are the questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. And so first, let's consider why we should learn, or in other words, why we should be concerned with a Christian mind in the church. I think what the text suggests in answer to this is that it's, it's actually a defining part of what a disciple actually is. You know, why should a disciple learn? Because part of what a disciple is is a learner. In the same way that we could think about a, a carpenter, he cuts wood, or, or a, a, a welder, he joins metals together, a disciple learns. It's the nature of who he is and what he does. Uh, a main purpose of Matthew's gospel, just zooming out, is to not only identify Christ as the, as the Messiah and the King, but, but it's also to teach about the ways of the King's kingdom. And, and part of that is to discuss uh, what kind of people are going to be a part of it. That's a lot of what Matthew's doing. And, and part of how he does this is through sort of the, the mat- macro structure of his book. Part of the macro structure of the book of Matthew, the way that he's, he's kind of organized the whole thing, is that he switches back and forth between large blocks of narrative, which is just like uh, storytelling. Think those are just the moments where the, the story is moving forward, advancing the story forward. He switches back and forth between that and large blocks of discourse. Now, that's a very technical term, but the discourse sections, they're better understood just as sections of Jesus' teaching, where he teaches not just about the kingdom, but of the way of the kingdom and the right people of the kingdom. You could think about the first one in, in chapters 5 to 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. That's a large block of discourse of Jesus, Jesus' teaching. Then we get another large block of teaching in chapter 10, and there's five total in the book of Matthew, the third of which is here in chapter 13. This is a large block of Jesus' teaching in uh, teaching on parables of the kingdom. And you'll see if you read through that chapter, many of them start like this. He says something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable. That's what this chapter is mostly made up of. And so these few verses that we're focused on this morning, they're at somewhat of a critical point in the book, Right? They're in the middle of five blocks of teachings of Jesus, and because of that, they're placed right at the center of the book, right at the center of the book of Matthew. And this is significant because look at how verse 51 starts. Jesus, he asks a question, right? Have you understood these things? So again, if we just zoom out, in in the middle section of Jesus's five blocks of teachings and in the very middle of Matthew's book he puts this question that Jesus asks of his disciples have you understood these things that I'm saying 
Now, there's two reasons I want to point out sort of the magnitude of this question for us that we should take note of if we're, if we're good Bible readers this morning. First, this question, it, it's, it's really a diagnostic question about the status of your heart. Uh, look back in verses 10 to 15 with me for just a second. The disciples there in verse 10, they ask Jesus why he speaks in parables, and he responds first by saying this. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Okay, so there's a clear distinction being made between the disciples and the other people, and the distinction is that the disciples, they have been given knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, right? He makes this this distinction back in Matthew 11 as well, where where he says that God has revealed himself through his son to some, but not to all. Then in verse 13, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes out of Isaiah, who foretold of a people who would have eyes but not see, who would have ears but not hear, who although they hear, they don't understand. This language, of course, is I hope you... You, you may remember from the book of Romans, it's Old Testament language that describes the condition of sin. That's what this is. It describes what, the reason why humanity is, is apart from God on the outside, looking in on the fulfillment of God's promises. They lack understanding. It's a description of an unbeliever. And so we bring all of that to bear on this because, because Matthew intends that you bring it all to bear on this. And then we get to verse 51, and Jesus himself, he asks the question, do you understand what I'm saying? And friends, we see that the magnitude of that question, because, because to answer yes to that question, it's to say, I'm not one of those who has ears but does not hear. I'm one of the other ones that Matthew repeatedly talks about, who has, who, who, I'm one of the ones who understands. To answer yes is to say I'm not one of those who lacks spiritual understanding. I'm one of those that Isaiah described as having turned to the Lord, who understands with their heart now. To answer yes is to say I'm not someone who has turned away from God in my sin. I've turned away from my sin and back to God with my whole life. And one description of my new life is I now understand God and what he says. And friends, all those people who this is true of, these are the disciples of Jesus. To answer yes is to say, yes, I'm following you, Jesus, which means that the question Jesus asks is nothing less than asking, are you a true follower or aren't you? That's the question. Because a disciple understands. But the second reason this is significant is that it's not just simply a question for these men in the story with Jesus. It's also a question for everyone reading Matthew's book that he's written. Unless we kind of just brush this off as just a question that Jesus asks a, a specific group of men at a particular time and circumstance in history, let's again consider that Matthew, he positions it in the very center of the book in such a way that it really becomes the central question for anyone not just standing next to Jesus in ancient history, but anyone reading Matthew's book about him as well. It's a question for, for you and for me, not just potential followers then, but potential followers now and everyone in between. You can think about it maybe sort of like a, 
like a 3D movie, right, with, with Matthew as the director, and he, he puts Jesus front and center on the screen. And Jesus is just kind of there. It's a headshot. He's looking at you, maybe pointing his finger straight in the air, and it's, it's popping out of the screen at you, right? And he's addressing anyone in the audience who may be watching, and he asks the question, do you understand the things that I'm saying? That's what's going on here. It's in these ways that the authors, they don't, they don't just simply intend or, or even allow you to, to be casual third-party observers to what happened, but they actually want to involve us in what's happening. The question stands for us in the exact same way that it did for these men in the story. And notice how it, it's only once the disciples, they answer yes, that he says, he says these words. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven, or as I said when we read it, some versions, they'll, they'll say every scribe who has become a disciple. We'll talk more about what's going on there, but he, he essentially affirms them as disciples because they do understand what he's been teaching. And so we see through, through the language that Jesus uses in interacting with his disciples, and we also see from, from just a, a literary sort of compositional perspective that this question, this question of do you understand, it very much lies at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It defines the nature of discipleship. Now, it's, it's all fine and well to kind of make the point that disciples learn and followers of Jesus, they're ones who understand. But I know what, I know what somebody's thinking this morning. Well, how much understanding do I have to have, right? How much do I need to be a follower of Jesus? Well, for one, I think we'll fill this in more as we go and, and we kind of think about what we learn and then what we do with that, that'll sort of give us a vision, I think, for what, what kind of competency Jesus envisions here for his followers. But for now, we, we need to acknowledge just sort of a basic level, I think, of spiritual understanding, uh, so much so that we're actual members of the kingdom that he's talking about, right? Uh, the idea is there, there, there is a minimal requirement to be, to be in, per se, which we would say is just, it's just simply understanding and believing the gospel. But then we also need to acknowledge that in order to be a faithful disciple, growth is expected. That we don't just stay in as infants in our knowledge of God and his word. Paul, he, he commends Timothy as his disciple in 2 Timothy 3 for following his teaching along with his conduct, faith, patience, aim in life. He commands him in 1 Timothy to keep close watch on himself and on the teaching to persist in this. Uh, you remember too in Romans 12 we're commanded to, to be continually transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so the, the disciple of Jesus, he's one who learns from him, who both understands his teachings and his kingdom, and who continues to grow in their understanding of his word. But second, and it's very important that we put these two together, right? We also need to understand for our own hearts that the disciples did not understand everything. In fact, many times as we just kind of read through the story, it looks like they don't understand anything. Uh, all throughout the book of Matthew is evidence not of the disciples' great understanding of Jesus and his word and what he came to do, but of their great misunderstanding. Just a few chapters later, in fact, Peter, he's going to rebu be rebuked for suggesting that Jesus does not, in fact, need to suffer despite Jesus' repeated allusion to his, to his death. And so... 
just very practically, I think, as we consider this, this truth on one hand, that a disciple is a learner, someone who understands the teachings of Jesus. For some of us, maybe on, on either side of this even, we need to just sort of take a deep breath for a moment and realize that we're not being faced with the expectation of knowing everything. Uh, that there is, there is grace in this, like every other aspect of the Christian life. And, and before we begin to make this about uh, competition and, and legalism, we need to make it about grace, and we need to desire to learn more about Jesus out of a heart that is first resting in his grace, even in this. But there's room for growth, and there's expectation of that. But there's room for grace as well, and we have to start with grace in this area, just like we do all others as well. And so part of what a disciple is, is a learner, but let's now consider what specifically the disciple learns. What is the content of the Christian mind, so to speak? What I think the text suggests is that the the disciple, he's to learn the scriptures. (laughs) And to summarize it just very, very broadly, he's to learn how the parts fit into the whole and present one unified message about Christ and his kingdom. Uh, everything else, I think, falls under this one very broad hermeneutical question. So let's kind of break this up into two parts and talk about the idea of, of first, scribes being trained in the Word, and then secondly, specifically, how the parts fit into the whole. Those are the two things going on here. Uh, first, Jesus, he compares them to scribes. Read with me again. Jesus asks, Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Uh, some of you may know just from, from, from the Bible, really, the significance of a scribe, as we know from other places, is that these were, these were men who were skilled in the scriptures. That's who they were. They were skilled in the text of scripture. Uh, Ezra, who is actually, he's a really good example, if you just read the book of Ezra and kind of follow his life, a, a really good example of what we're kind of advocating for this morning. It says in Ezra 7-6 of him that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And so that's kind of a description of what a scribe was. We also see throughout the book of Matthew that the scribes, along with the Pharisees, they were often questioning Jesus about the scriptures. And so, again, the picture here is just that it's someone who, they're very well versed in the Bible. They know their Bibles really well. They're trained in it. And Jesus, based on the disciples' answer of yes, now calls them a scribe who has become trained in the kingdom of heaven, or a scribe who has become a disciple, a follower. The implication being here, disciples, they are people who are trained in the word of God. They're like scribes. They're, they're trained in the biblical text. And so Jesus here, he envisions both a certain type of scribe that has become a follower of him, but also a certain kind of follower who is like a scribe. You follow me here? Someone trained in the kingdom through their competency in the scriptures. We do this in, in, in pop culture kind of all the time, right? We distinguish between book smart and street smart, right? At least we do where I'm from, right? I don't know what it would be is it the same around here? Would it be like book smart and farm smart? I don't know. I'm not that assimilated yet, I guess. But, but you get the point. There's, there's, there's academic knowledge on one hand, 
and then there's, there's real-world knowledge. Jesus wants both. <laughs> Jesus, he wants you to be skilled in the Word, but not just in intellect, right? He wants you to be someone who brings that knowledge to bear in how they function in the world as citizens of the kingdom and followers of Jesus. He wants both a scribe and a disciple, book smart and street smart. But second, the specific nature of their expertise in the word, it, it's, it's an understanding of how the parts fit into the whole. The image he gives of this kind of scribe disciple, scribe disciple read with me again, is that they, they're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And we kind of have to think about the imagery here a little bit. The word picture that he uses to describe this head of the household is one who brings out of his treasure new things and old things. Uh, there's, there's a fittingness to this selection. It's not a random selection of new things and old things, but an appropriate selection, right? It's a, it's a very strategic selection. The content of the treasure, it's new and old. There's some sort of structure to that itself, and the structure, it's... it's sort of based around how the old and new things relate to one another, right? They mutually define each other in that sense. They're, they're old and new in relation to one another. And not only that, they, they have to do with the, the treasure of the kingdom. So what we see is that these, these old things and these new things that Jesus talks about, it's, it's the revelation of the kingdom, which we know is found in the word. Again, that's the scribe idea. He's one who's trained in the word. But also the main subject matter of the book of Matthew, right? Not just the kingdom itself, but the revelation of the king of that kingdom, Jesus himself. He's the king. And so it's the old teachings, think Old Testament, and it's the new teachings here. Think Jesus' teaching that we're reading about, but also now that we have recorded for us in the New Testament. It's in that sense that this, this treasure he's talking about, that he brings old and new things out of, it's all the Bible, right? It's the old and the new, and it's Jesus himself as the fulfillment of everything that the Bible has been preaching about. The disciple that Jesus envisions here, he's one who's trained in the kingdom, trained in the texts that belong to the kingdom, and that teach about that kingdom, and he understands how they all relate to the king himself. They understand how the, the old writings go along with the new writings, and how how the writings themselves coincide with the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, when asking what a disciple understands or what a disciple learns, Jesus answers by describing how one understands how all the parts fit into the whole. How the old and new scriptures, they relate to one another as one testimony about Jesus. Uh, an illustration I like to use to kind of describe the Bible in this way is, is, uh, is that of a stained glass window. If you think about a stained glass window, it's made up of a lot of indi individual pieces, right? Uh, all placed together, and you need all the pieces to, to be put together to form the whole picture, right? Uh, but if you just kind of zoom in and you look at any one piece or, or any, you know, few, a little group of pieces, you don't really understand what the whole picture is. It's only once you zoom out and you look at the whole thing, all of the pieces put together, together, in the way that they should go, that you see what the image is. And this is much how the Bible works. This dynamic, I think, that, 
that, that Jesus wants us to pick up on as a disciple of him, it's illustrated for us very easily in the book of Matthew itself. If, if, if you remember, Matthew writes, he, as he writes, he repeatedly, just like other New Testament books, we saw this in Romans as well, he's repeatedly uh, bringing in Old Testament writings and sort of just weaving them into his narrative. And, and oftentimes the reason we see him do that, or the way that he does that, is, is to effectively say, look, right, this person that I'm talking about, Jesus, he's the one that the Old Testament talked about. He's the one that the Old Testament was hoping for and describing and anticipating. He's the one. Matthew, he employs the Old Testament, the older writings, in his writing, a newer one, and he demonstrates how to understand the person and work of this man, Jesus, in light of what the Old Testament has anticipated in the coming Messiah. And this is the nature of what a disciple learns. He not only just learns the text and the specific verses, but he learns how the text works, right? He learns how the Old and the New go together, how the Old Testament anticipates Christ, and how the New Testament identifies Jesus as the Christ. Uh, we stated this earlier, but it's, it's not that this is necessarily the only thing that we learn or the only topic that we discuss or think about, but we do need to understand that this is the starting point for everything else. Uh, we could also think more broadly about this idea of understanding the parts in light of the whole and of, of being able to understand the whole Bible and how it works. Uh, for example, this would just be some other conversations. How do the commands of the Bible fit in with its message that salvation comes by faith apart from works? How do we understand our responsibility to obey in light of God's sovereignty? How do we understand the kingdom having already come down but not yet fully realized? How do we understand our growth and maturity? Is it us or is it God's work? These are all questions that, that disciples answer, right? Skilled in the text. Understanding how the parts fit into the whole and bringing that all to bear on life as citizens for the kingdom. And friends, for this reason, if I could just say, nothing is more worth your time than the study of the Bible and understanding how it all fits together. Every other Christian task is, is secondary to the study of and the understanding of God's word and everything else in life is contingent upon it. Your understanding of life and, and, and how it works and what's happening around you is contingent upon how well you understand the Bible. Your understanding of how to parent your children is contingent upon how well you understand God's word. Your understanding of how to make wise decisions for the kingdom is contingent upon how well you understand God's word and how it all fits and goes together. And too often, we, we just allow ourselves to kind of passively be shaped by, by the culture and, and even Christian culture at times. And we fail to let the Word of God guide our thinking in everything that we do. The nature of discipleship is one of continued learning, of continued renewal of the mind through the Word, and the means of that it's nothing other than the Word of God itself, friends. It all starts and stops with God's Word, which is the primary content of our learning. Everything else flows from that. 
so the disciple, he, he learns the word of God, how the parts fit into the whole, so that they can understand all of God's word and how, how, it, how it relates to itself. But now let's think about one last thing, which is what are we to do with what we learn? What do we do with our, with our Christian minds in our lives? This is another place where I think we often uh, kind of run into issues and division in the church at times because uh, some, the, they rightly emphasize the need for, uh, for growing the mind, for growing in knowledge, but then it becomes very clear that the knowledge, uh, it only kind of serves the purpose of being able to sit up in an ivory tower somewhere, maybe uh, argue on the internet better, I don't know. But this vision that the Bible gives the disciple of Jesus for what we learn involves none of that. Far from being concerned with being uh, better in argument or just theological discussion, the Bible, I think, it it gives two main purposes for what we're to learn. First, the Bible envisions that you would teach other people what you know. Knowledge of God and His Word, it's not meant to be I'm not, not meant to be stored up for yourself, right? These are the people that Paul talks about as just being, uh, they, they become puffed up in their heads. All those verses in his Gospels. Uh, in English, I, I love this quote, an English preacher named Ian Tate once quipped. He said, those who study the Bible only to gain more information may believe their minds are expanding when in fact only their heads are swelling. <laughs> That's very biblical. Knowledge, it, it's not to be stored up for knowledge's sake. Rather, part of the vision for discipleship, it's that you would reach a stage of maturity to where you're now making disciples yourselves. It's an endless kind of circle and cycle in the life of the church where God's people, they continue to disciple each other, helping each other grow and mature. And this involves certainly much more than, but certainly not anything less than teaching each other how to understand the scriptures. See, I think we often think that this this idea of teaching and instructing in the Bible, it's just a task reserved for the pastor, right? We even talk about sometimes how uh, if you read the, the qualifications of a pastor or elder, we'll talk about how there's, there's really nothing special about them, right? How they apply to everybody except for one, the ability to teach. That he would be able to teach. That's what sets him apart. But, but I'm, not, I'm not so sure that that's accurate, right? Think about Matthew 28 when Jesus commissions his church out into the world to act with his authority. He commands them to make disciples. And you'll remember, one of the ways that they're to do that is by teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded them. Teaching then, it's not a leadership activity, it's a discipleship activity. And if discipleship is a responsibility only given to the pastor then only the pastor is tasked with needing to be able to teach the Bible. But friends, if discipleship is in every Christian responsibility or in every disciple responsibility, which we would argue that it is, then every Christian disciple of Jesus needs to be mature to the point to where they can lead someone else in understanding the Scriptures. And this is just part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's consistent with the portrait that we get in the rest of the New Testament as well. There's just a few verses here. Let me read these, because I think this is important. In Romans 15, 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. In Colossians three sixteen, he exhorts them, 
let the word of Christ dwell, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In Acts 18, uh, we see this little story of Apollos, who it says is an eloquent man who's competent in the scriptures, and he's instructed in the way of the Lord. He comes, and he begins to teach the things of Jesus. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they explained to him the way of Jesus more accurately. In Titus 2, Paul commands older men and older women to teach and train the younger men and younger women, among other things, what accords with sound doctrine. That's part of that. In Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, what do we kind of do with this idea that, that teaching is only responsibility of sort of the church leaders and the intellects? Well, we metaphorically, respectfully, maybe just write that down on a piece of paper and throw it out the window, and we never talk about it again. Right. Or what about this idea that teaching, it's just, just for certain people with certain sets of skills or personality disp- dispositions? Well, we do the same thing. Does this mean that every Christian is going to stand up and teach a class or, or, or preach a sermon every week? Well, no, but it, but it may mean that you sit across the table from somebody and you just open the Word of God and you talk about it and you explain it to them. It's a disciple-making activity and it necessitates that every disciple of Jesus, regardless of natural-born skill set, regardless of gifting, regardless of personality, be involved in not only growing proficient with God's word, but being proficient enough to sit down and open it up and explain it to other believers who need to grow in it. And this is how the church grows, friends. Understand that. That's what we're talking about. It's not by a gifted speaker just just standing up here every week and, and communicating convincing sermons. It's not it's not by a gifted worship team standing up here putting on a good performance. It's not by you know, vibrant youth ministries or, or having enough programs to draw people in. The church grows, and, and we're not just talking numerically either. We're talking about growth and maturity. The church grows into the full measure of Christ simply through this just kind of groundswell movement of Jesus' disciples just, just learning his word and teaching it to others. That's it. That's how the church grows. Scribes becoming disciples, training each other by God's word, this is the life of discipleship and the life of God's people, and that's what we're all called to. A second thing we do with what we learn, the Bible envisions that you would, you would take all that you, that you know and you learn, and you would express it in love. This love, it's expressed in, in two directions, horizontally toward others, but also vertically towards God. First, let's talk about how we're to love God with what we learn. And this is maybe, maybe not even just a result of learning, but, but one of the actual ways that we can love God in the process is by learning more about him, right? Jesus says as much in Matthew 22 when this uh, slick religious leader comes and he, he asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says the second one, is to love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
And so in other words, we're to love God and we love others. And one of the ways that we love God is with our minds. That's what he says. This exercising of our mind to grow in our knowledge of him and his word, it's one of the ways that we express that love by devoting, again, our entire selves, our entire being to knowing him and enjoying him forever, friends, rightly understood before theology ends again in, in winning an argument or just standing in front of a classroom and teaching, it ends in doxology. It ends in, in praising and worshiping God for who he is. That's the end of our learning. It's more knowledge that not in itself that's the end. It, it's ultimately to deepen our relationship and love for God through knowing him more and more. Secondly, this love, it should also be directed outwardly towards other people. The Bible, it, it repeatedly puts forward this idea of, of the goal of our instruction, that's the language that it'll use, being love. Paul states this plainly in 1 Timothy 1 and, and Philippians 1. I think we can also think about this idea of, of, the, of the master of the house, right, to come back to this sort of imagery that Jesus uses. The master of the house, he, he brings out of his treasure what is old and what's new. And there's, there's a fittingness that's present in the imagery there. There's an organization and there's a structure to the parts. They're, they're old and new in relation to one another. But the master brings them out and implied in that is that he brings them out at the right time. He, he brings out the right treasure for the right moment in time so that he can no less encourage and instruct and rebuke reprove, correct, train each other with the right word at the right time. I think oftentimes this is another thing that we, we unfortunately separate in our minds in the church. We, we kind of think that some people, uh, some people are going to love really well, right? And other people in the church, they're going to be the good thinkers. Or, or maybe we, we do this with churches in general, right? We think about churches and there's some churches that are going to be really hospitable and welcoming, but maybe the teaching isn't as great. Or, or other churches where they're going to have really sound, doctrinal, good, careful, precise thinking, but, but it's a very cold environment, and it's not very welcoming. Rightly understood, though, our knowledge of God and our love for others go hand in hand. These things should not be separate. They go hand in hand. After all, if you if you don't know the scriptures, what are you really loving them with, right? Uh, I had a mentor who, <clears throat> before I decided, was kind of thinking about taking some theological uh, classes and just doing some, some education at school. He, he basically put it like this. I was just talking with him about making the decision, you know, do I want to do this or not? What, what was the value in it? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, he said there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to love people, right? The question is by what intensity? In other words, uh, theological education, it's not going to give you something that, that isn't already there, namely just the, the disposition of your heart to love people. It's not going to give you that. What it will give you is a deeper well to love them with, a deeper intensity by which you can love them with. And I think that's exactly right. Because if we say that the church, in the church, we have, we have all the answers to life's hardest problems, uh, 
we, we have the answers, we have the means of encouragement and getting through and, and explaining life. If we say all that's true, then friends, we need to be diligent in understanding all that the Bible teaches. We need to be diligent in understanding how it talks, how it actually explains life. Not to, again, not to win arguments or be seen as much in the eyes of men, but for this purpose, so that when your brother or sister in Christ is really going through it, you have the right word for the right time. That's what a disciple does. He, he learns so that he can love. And for some of us, the question is not whether or not we're going to learn, but what we're going to do with what we learn. And for others of us, it's not a question of whether or not we're going to love people, but a question of by what intensity. And friends, there's, there's a lot we could say about what it means to be a disciple, and I hope that you're not holding me to the standard of saying everything, because we're going we're gonna to spend three more weeks on this, just kind of trying to fill in the vision, and even then, there will be much more that we can and should say. But our goal is a simple one. And one thing that I hope you've been convinced of this morning is that a disciple learns that the Christian mind is important, that the vision for Jesus had for, for those who would follow him is that, among other things, they would be skilled in handling the word of truth because, friends, everything else hinges upon that one thing. You understand that? Everything else hinges upon that. It's God's word itself that, that, that is what connects the gaps between us and Jesus, who, who he now sits at the right hand of the Father, right? One of the uh, one of the very interesting dynamics about discipleship in our context now is that we're, we're told to follow Jesus, but Jesus isn't here, right? <laughs> and so how do we do that? What's well, through his word? His word is what, what testifies to who he is and what he's done, and it's his word that we, that we continually come back to week in and week out for that very purpose. But another way that we follow him in his word, it's by, it's by exercising the, the specific means of grace that he's laid out in his word for us to participate in, even after Jesus is gone, to remember him and, and to participate in the new life that he's accomplished, one of which we're going to partake in in just a moment here. Uh, Jesus, he instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. which says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take and eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I love this part of it here, too. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so those of you who are helping with communion, if you would come up, and Nate, you can come up for worship as well. We do this as God's people, not as just because it's what, you know, it's the rituals that we have in our church. We do it both to remember Christ and what he's done, but also to look forward to what he's going to do, which is to gather us up in eternity with him in his kingdom. And so for that reason, we do believe that it is uh, for the believer only. If you've not trusted in Christ, this won't uh, do anything to save you or to bring you closer to him. 
but it is a testimony to you of what is available to you if you make that decision and choose to trust him with your life. By means of instruction, um, once I pray, Nate will lead in worship here. You can come up on the left, come up this way. Pat and Susan will serve. And then if you could exit this way and be seated, uh, feel free to take it on your own. We won't take it together, but if you want to gather together with family or uh, small churches or whatever whatever group, that's great. Um, go ahead and take it, and then we will end in one more song with Nate. Let me pray, and you're welcome to come up. Father, we thank you again just for for everything that you've done, Lord. We thank you that we, we stand here as your blood brought bought people, not because of anything that we've done to earn it, Lord, uh, but because you sent your son to live the life that we couldn't. Um, God, you give us the perfect righteousness of Christ through faith in him. And we, as your people now, we both look back, believing and trusting not only what you did, but also in what it accomplished for us, Lord, but we also don't just look back. We continue to look forward. And we look forward to the day when we will one day be gathered with you perfectly, seated around your table, doing this very thing that we're about to do, which is breaking bread together. And we trust and we hope in that because of your faithfulness then, that you'll be faithful in the future as well, Lord. Help our hearts to believe this, Lord, and to live as faithful followers of you. And we pray these things in your name. Done. 
Everything to God in prayer 